Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19, that is where our scripture reading will be this morning. Luke chapter 19, we'll start in verse 28. I don't know if many of you know this, but I used to be a valet driver before I crashed someone's car and got fired. Uh, When I lived in Chicago, I worked a valet job and I was told that I'd be working a very uh, private party on the south side of Chicago and I would have to go through a security clearance to get there. And, you know, that was pretty common for my job. I worked for a lot of rich people in the city. We once worked for the mayor. So, uh, I, poor college student I was, I, drove, I rode my bicycle down to the south side of the city, and there were, um, like, military vehicles. Uh, there were men in black suits with guns. It was very intimidating. And uh, I got to the security checkpoint, and they patted me down, and they told me that I'd be working a private party for Barack Obama. And I was very excited. He was our president at the time. It was like an honor and a privilege to be able to serve my president. And uh, that was just rare. People don't get to do that often. And uh, so I um, was incredibly close to our president. Uh, But I never saw him a single time. Uh, I invited all his guests into uh, into the gates of his house, uh, but uh, never saw, never greeted him. I drove all their cars. I was very close to the president, uh, but there was a barrier between me and him that was impenetrable. In fact, if I tried to get to Barack Obama, I probably would have been shot. Uh, I... um, but I did, I would have liked to talk to our president at the time. I had a lot going on. I was a broke college student. I could have used uh, some money. Earlier that year, I actually had a friend die by a drive-by shooting in, in Chicago. Um, I was working in a poor neighborhood with a fourth grade student uh, who did not, who had not learned his ABCs yet. Uh, I wish I could have asked, how can you help us? Are there things that you can do? You are our leader. Could you help me? But I had no access to him. There was a barrier. Uh, And a lot of people, I think, uh, think that the God of the Bible is the same way. That he's real. He's a miracle worker. He is our creator, but he is not active in our lives. Uh, That he might be close, but we can feel that he's miles away from us. We have no access. Uh, he's too great. We are too small. He's too holy. We are too sinful. He is too busy to bother with someone like me. Have you ever felt that way? But I'm here to tell you today, to remind you what Palm Sunday is all about, that, that the God of the Bible, the God of Palm Sunday, the King of the universe, is incredibly accessible to you. And he's not someone who's just accessible, he's someone who sees you, and he has the power and authority to change everything, to make everything right. And that's what we're going to read about, that king, the king who, co- who comes. So chapter 19, if you'd read with me, Luke 19, starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, 
already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Gracious God and Father, we praise you. We thank you for the gift of what this week means to us. What we remember is our greatest gift, the greatest gift to the world, that your son would die in our place. Would you cause our hearts to worship you because of that this morning? Uh, as we read and think about your word and we think about you as our king, would you cause our minds, our emotions, even our actions, God, to respond to you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our king has come. His name is Jesus, and he is accessible to you. He sees you, and he has the power and authority to make all things right. So this story picks up in a very interesting period in time when uh, the political uh, uh, air is really difficult. There's uh, some really difficult things going on in the religious uh, realm in the area, and Jesus had made a strong impact on the world already. With his preaching, his miracles, and his ministry, Jesus was shaking things up politically and religiously, and he had built quite a following. And his ministry uh, had reached a climax. He had just raised his cousin Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, and he was headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal. And people had heard about these miracles, but he just raised someone from the dead, and something great was about to happen. People were following him. His time had come. And so he would not enter just as a rabbi into Jerusalem. He would enter as the king. And so riding atop a colt, Jesus makes his way towards the temple. And the crowds were massive because during Passover, the Jewish people uh, would travel toward the temple to sacrifice and worship, to be close to God, to access God. And uh, so you have all these crowds with many opinions about this man. You have Rome, who is intent on holding their power, and you have the Jewish leaders who are intent on not letting this man make changes, and you have his followers who are ecstatic about this moment. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus, if he really was who he said he was, this is the moment the signs have pointed towards. This is what the prophecies had led up to, that he as the Messiah, the King, 
would take his throne. It, it, you know, we've been waiting for this moment. Uh, he, he will take his, own, uh, uh, his throne and peace will reign. He will make war against Rome. He will overthrow Caesar. He, he would correct the temple worship. He would call his people home. He'd make Israel the center of the world. And from David's throne, he would make all things right again. Wouldn't you want to be there? Could, could you feel the excitement of that moment? I have often read uh, the triumphal entry story as a, a somber moment. It seems kind of sad. And um, do you need some water, Joan? Could, um, John, could you grab some? Thanks. Um, I've often uh, read the triumphal entry story as a very somber moment, uh, but this was not like that. Uh, there was incredible joy and expectation for what might come next. Uh, the king is here. Uh, but he comes in on a colt. Uh, the Greek word used here is actually a miniature horse. Uh, so has anyone seen Parks and Rec here before? Uh, I always think of like little Sebastian. That's, that's who Jesus is choosing to ride in and as the Messiah, uh, the God-man, the king of the world. If that's who he was, why didn't he come in on a stallion? Or honestly, if he was the king of the world and could, could move all things and, and make animals obey him, I, why wouldn't he ride in on a lion, right? Wouldn't that be cool? But no, he chose a baby horse. Why? You see, a war horse or a lion is a heroic and mighty animal, but it's not approachable by an enemy, right? Would you approach a lion? Probably not. Um, Jesus instead chose to enter as the king on a smelly, disgusting-looking animal. And, and he did this to fulfill a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, but he did this as a symbol of accessibility, um, our God has come, not as high and mighty to destroy, but on your level to save you. Uh, but the crowd is mixed here. Uh, his followers threw down their cloaks in palm branches, as other gospels wrote, in an act done for only royalty in Rome would they receive that honor. They were saying, he's our king. Uh, some recognized him that way. They wanted a Messiah, and now they had one, and he was accessible to them. And so they rejoiced, and they sang songs of praise to God. They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In, in other gospels, it says that they screamed out, Hosanna, which means, save me. But others were indifferent. Others had their arms crossed. And the Pharisees approached Jesus saying, rebuke your disciples. And they did this because they knew what was happening. It was what got Jesus killed. In this moment, he was receiving the public praise uh, for him being the king of the world, being the savior. And they could not believe what they were seeing. They couldn't uh, cause an uproar because that would bring the Romans into the situation. They couldn't have that. They didn't believe in violence, so they couldn't you know, start telling people to stop and, and cause any frustration. So they had to go to Jesus and say, you need to tell them to stop. This is wrong. You are not who they say you are. And he says, no, I am the king. And this cannot be stopped. Even if I silence the people, I think one of the coolest verses in the Bible, even the rocks, the stones would cry out in praise to me. You see, the king has come, and he has made himself accessible to everyone. All creation itself will submit to his rule. 
How about you? Who is your king? Jesus has come to be your king, and he has come to you not in anger and wrath, but in love, in humility. Will you worship him that way? Will you respond to that kind of king? But our king isn't just accessible. He is a king who sees his kingdom. He is aware of his people. He knows their need, and he is moved into compassion for them. Luke says that they drew near to the city, and Jesus wept over it. Um, this word doesn't mean, uh, to quote Lee Middlecoff, that he shed a, a tear out of his glass eye. Actually, the word means that he wailed. Right that At the sight of his people in his kingdom, in their lostness, he burst into sobbing over them. This is a stark contrast from the joy that was just experienced by the people. They saw their king, but they didn't realize how much their king saw them. God is not just accessible through Jesus the king. God sees you inside and out, and with great love and compassion, he weeps for you. Our sin pains God, but to reject him uh, as our king who wants to make things right, that breaks his heart because he knows our end without him. You see, in this moment, the Messiah had come and they would miss it. Uh, that the message of peace had been brought, but they would reject it. They would kill him and Israel would be overthrown. This was actually a prophetic moment for, for Jesus. Israel would be destroyed. The temple would be destroyed and this broke Jesus' heart. But I would say that the same is true today. The king has arrived. He's revealed himself to the world. The message of peace has been offered by a God who sees us in our chaos. We cannot miss him. He has come as God in the flesh to, to be accessible to you in this moment, to be your savior, and a greater destruction is yet to come, a greater chaos, and we can't turn our backs to him. We have to put down our palm branches in our, in our coats and say, he's our king. We need to say, Hosanna, save me. We must see the God who sees us and call Jesus our king. And we need this kind of king in our world today, don't we? Don't we? A king who weeps with us over a world that is awful. I think of the recent shooting in Nashville, and I just read of the horrors that happen um, in our culture. And the killing of a three-year-old girl is just devastating. Doesn't it want us to ask for a better king, for justice? Does the world not need that? Where is our hope? And after the death of this three-year-old girl, the father's first sentence uh, his first response was, through tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus. Who will raise her to life again. Jesus weeps with us in our pain. He looks at the injustice in the world, even the sin of your heart, and he is moved with compassion. He sees us. Um, but like this father confesses, he offers more than just tears. I have access to the king of the world. I know he sees my pain, but there is more. He has power and authority to make this right. The text moves on. Um, we have Jesus entering the city as this humble king. He sees and weeps over his kingdom, knowing that they will miss it, knowing that they will reject him. And now he walks into his temple his house, 
and he acts like a king. He moves with power and authority. You see, the point of the temple was to meet with God, right, the king of the world. He had always made it accessible for all people to come and meet with him, to draw near to him. And now, that same God, the king of the world, had come in the flesh, and he walked into his temple, and he found that it was no longer a house of relationship. It was a house of empty religion and money-making. So when Jesus walks in, of course, he is upset. This is his house. And as the king, doesn't he make the rules? And he has the authority and power to rearrange what is happening in there. And he does. Now, there is a lot going on in these four sentences. Uh, The temple, as we know it, had layers to it, right? In the center was the Holy of Holies, and that's where God's presence dwelt. And, And then outside that, there were different courts, The first court was for the priests. They could draw the closest. Outside that were the Jewish men, uh, the court for the Jewish men. Outside that was the court for the Jewish women. And outside that was the court for the Gentiles. And what would happen is the point is that certain people had levels to get close to God. But whoever you were, you could draw near to God to be close to his presence. Uh, But right outside the court of the Gentiles on the south wall, was this skinny strip mall um, where people could go to, to purchase their sacrifices. You see, people would go there to purchase animals for sacrifice in order to draw near to God. And merchants would bid uh, their pr- prices to the priests who would take a cut of the profits uh, for those sales. And um, so the Passover was a very profitable time for the temple because hundreds of thousands of people would travel to the city to worship, and they would need to purchase these animals when they arrived if they wanted to get close to God. And in this mall, the priests and merchants would have a considerably high marked-up value for these animals. Uh, In this mall, uh, they would um, profit greatly from the people. It's kind of like this. When I fly, I could get up extra early and make a cup of coffee for about 10 cents. Or... I can get to the terminal and pay $10 for a Starbucks. Often I pay the $10. I don't have to worry about making it. Uh, I don't have to worry about bringing a mug and where to put it. I don't have to worry about spilling it. It's worth it to me to have the extra money. Not for my wife. She's very frugal. I said cheap last service. I got in trouble. She would probably just eat the coffee grounds on the way (laughs) if it would save us a dollar. But for me, I'm into convenience. But for them, why didn't they bring their own sacrifice? In order to draw near to God and gain access to him, they had to make sure that that animal had no blemishes on it whatsoever. And this was difficult because they were traveling from miles and miles away. And accidents happen. Theft happens. It could slow them down. Uh, It could get damaged on the way or even die. And even if they got the animal there, the priests are the ones who would declare it to be kosher. And they could say, no, you need to buy another one. It's like you, you made your cup of coffee and you get to security and they make you dump it out. And then you eventually just have to buy the $10 Starbucks. Anyways, it's the same idea. The merchants in the temple priests were profiting greatly here. But not only was this happening, once the travelers made it to the outer court uh, mall, they had to trade their Roman money in to get special temple money at a 25% exchange rate. 
So the temple profited even more, and people were desiring to be close to the presence of God, and the people who were supposed to help them draw near to God were taking advantage of them. And in this case, when Jesus walks in, they're not just taking advantage, they're making it impossible for some people to worship God altogether. When I was in Israel, I saw the small alleyway uh, where the merchants would have gone. It's like four people long. It's not big. And so during this uh, Passover time, they saw an opportunity here. Let's expand the, the, um, the court. Let's expand the market into the court of the temple that matters the least to us. Let's expand it into the court of the Gentiles. So in the only place that all people had access to God, the very front of the temple, the merchants and priests turned it into a flea market petting zoo. And Jesus walks into the temple to the court that should have been a place of worship for the Gentiles. And there are sheep, doves, people yelling, money changers dealing out temple coins, uh, coins, making money. It was a shopping mall. So Jesus gets upset. Can you see why Jesus is upset? He has a right to be. He starts throwing tables. Sheep are running around. There's tied up doves on the ground. And Jesus forces all the merchants out of the court and back into the mall. Why? Because Jesus is the king and he has the authority to make what is wrong right again, the power to make changes, and he has to. It's what he's here to do. He's here to bring peace. But what kind of peace? A peace between God and man. He quotes uh, Isaiah 56. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer. Essentially, what Jesus was saying was that this house would be a house for relationship between God and man, a house for people to meet God, talk to God, hear from God, be directed by God, and be at peace with God. But he says, you have made it a den of robbers. You see, the priests weren't just taking advantage of the Jewish people. They were completely disregarding the world, the Gentiles. They made it inaccessible to the world to get to God. But Jesus comes and he changes everything. He shows up as the king in his kingdom, into his temple, and guess where he doesn't go? Where did they think he should go? The center, to sit on the throne, on the mercy, mercy seat. But no, he stays in the outer courts with the Gentiles because he was the kind of king that saw all people and wanted to be incredibly accessible to everyone. He was changing things, and he had the power to do it. He was turning temple worship upside down. He was suggesting no longer will my people need to try and get close to me, to God. No longer will there be a barrier between us. God will draw close to people. No longer will my presence remain in the center of a temple. I am breaking forth throughout the world And upon his death, the curtain tore into two, and that is exactly what happened. So Jesus remained in the outer courts, and he taught. And it says that people were hanging on to his every word. He he walked into his temple as the king, and and with authority, he's rearranging it. He's fixing it, right? His preaching probably would have been no different. With authority and power to change things on the outside, he was probably speaking with power and authority to change what was on the inside. 
to the hearts of men and women. He was sharing the gospel. And here's the reality. Jesus is at the door of your heart even today, and he wants to come in and turn tables. He wants to change things. And if he is the God of the universe, if he is our king, doesn't he have the authority to do that? He does. But those who hang on to his every word are those who see that he is changing you for the good. He's saving you. He's redeeming you. We need him. We are lost and empty without a king like that. We are a temple without worship, a soul without life. You need a king who will save you and make all things right. And that's who this king is. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. That king has come. His name's Jesus. He's made himself accessible. He's made God accessible to you even today. That's what we celebrate at communion. He sees you. He knows your need. And beyond that, he has the power and authority to make all things right. And he wants to do that for you. Invite him to do that. Worship him out of response, even today, this week for Easter. That's our joy. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for King Jesus, that he is our king. God, our world is so broken. We need you. We need someone. And we have Jesus, God. Thank you so much for the gift of your son who died for us and was resurrected that we might have life in life forever. God, would we worship you as our king right now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.